Hi there and welcome to The Brave, the podcast about the people, systems and companies building a better future. I'm your host, Beth and Vincent, and I am the managing partner of Open Velocity. We're a marketing strategy consultancy and we work with, unsurprisingly, the companies building a better future. And if I'm honest, this podcast is really our excuse to chat to interesting people doing interesting things and share that with you. So this week we're talking about space the final frontier, or at least an emerging and very interesting frontier, especially here in the UK. So in the years 2020 to 2021, UK space industry income actually grew by 5.1% in real terms to 17.5 billion. And this came at a time where the UK economy declined by 7.6%. So it, it is becoming an emerging and very important part of the UK technology sector. And I think when we place the UK's kind of capabilities and space industry globally, it's actually quite interesting that we're outpacing the global space industry. So we're growing at this 5.1%, whereas the global space industry is growing at 1.6%. So we really have the opportunity to become leaders in this sector, and especially because um, of our latitude as well, that becomes quite interesting for us. And the fact we've got a load of sea around us as well, and, and not a kind of huge continental population, that also presents a real opportunity. But it, it's not been without challenges. And I'm sure, you know, a lot of people listening to this who are interested in the UK space industry saw the news about um, Virgin Orbit's disastrous or, well, failed launch a couple of months ago. And that was a big blow, especially for the Cornwall space industry, which is where uh, there is a lot of innovation and a lot of companies setting up. And I think in terms of space, you know, you've, you've got the obvious kind of hardware that you, you need to build. You need satellites to send up into orbit. You need launch capabilities. And that's really cool and really interesting. But what really excites me is, you know, what, what do we do once they're up there? What, what does this technology actually unlock? And, you know, we've got the kind of communications route. You've got, you know, Starlink, all of that kind of stuff that's super cool. But we're now seeing use cases emerge of things like satellite imagery being used to monitor the climate crisis and the impact on vegetation, on animals. And it's allowing scientists to have a much clearer review on what's going on and potentially how we can adapt how we can change how we can secure you know animal populations we can secure environments and I really wanted to speak to Phil Bunkard about this who's got a wealth of experience in what's happening you know what are what are the different opportunities for technology in the space industry so I really hope you enjoyed this chat with Phil I definitely learned a few things and I'm really excited to kind of see this industry continue to emerge here in the UK. So I'll leave it to Phil to kind of take it away and let's explore what comes next for space. Yeah, hi, I'm Phil Brunkard. I'm a technology leader with about 25 years experience. Um, I've been curious about technology and innovation for some time and more recently in the last three years I've been working with Forrester Research talking about technology, emerging technology, uh, disruptive innovation. Now I'm working independently um, as a technology advisor, helping companies with their digital strategies. And today I'd like to share with you some of my insight and thinking about emerging technology. Perfect. Great to have you on, Phil. So first up, we're going to be talking about space. And I think, you know, everyone's heard about Elon Musk and Starlink and all of that kind of stuff and Virgin Galactic and all the shiny news stories. But why why should business leaders be interested in space and a lot of the kind of activity, you know, innovation that's happening in that area? Yeah, I mean, like you say, we've heard about missions to Mars and the moon and millionaire space tours, but there is a lot more behind the scenes. 
Um, for example, we probably are aware that uh, Musk is launching Starlink um, Constellation. At the moment, that's just over 4,000 satellites, but he's got ambitions to increase that tenfold to 44,000. So why is he doing that? It's not just about connectivity, and that's something that we, we, we should explore. Similarly, um, Bezos, Amazon, they have plans to launch, launch Amazon Kuiper. Won't be as big as Starlink, that's about 4,000 uh, satellites, and they are focused on connectivity in the American market and have ambitions to manufacture five satellites a day, which is unprecedented within the industry. So what's driving that ambition? And importantly, there's a whole bunch of other players that we're not necessarily hearing about outside of the market that are doing really interesting things with um, integrating uh, Internet of Things with satellite connectivity, looking at uh, imaging. So, so, for example, we've seen the images from the Russia-Ukraine war and doing some other uh, interesting things by uh, using the power of AI to provide better analytics about the planet. And again, that's something we can explore. Yeah, lots going on there then. So just, just for kind of context for listeners, there's obviously different types of satellites. And this is something I wasn't particularly aware of. So it, I, I wonder if it's worth just outlining the picture of what are the different types to people and maybe starting, most people have heard of geostationary um, satellites and, and that seems to be quite the old school way of doing it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think it's probably worth um, starting with an explanation and an analogy of what keeps the satellite up in space whizzing around the planet in the first place. Um, and it's a combination of a number of things. So it's the speed of the satellite, its location from um, distance from the planet, and that is in proportion to the gravitational pull that the Earth has on the planet. And a good analogy and way of thinking about this is if you have a stone tied to it, an end of a piece of string, the longer that string is, as you spin it around, it goes slower. But when you shorten the string, you need to go a lot, lot faster. Now, bear that in mind when we talk about the different types of satellites. So you gave the example of geo satellites, and they're at an altitude of about 36,000 kilometers away from Earth. And their rotation is at the same speed as the Earth's rotation. So they're following the Earth. And that's why it's the stationary aspect, the geostationary. We can talk about the advantages and disadvantages afterwards, but it's worth talking about each of the different types. So you have that satellite at quite a large, quite a distance away from, from the from Earth. Um, but you can imagine that the further away it is, then the harder the communications is, there's going to be um, a, a longer lag in terms of latency. Uh, and also the, the, the strength of the single. And again, another good analogy is, is if you have a football and you shine a torch on it, yeah, if you could, the further away, the greater the coverage of the, the light on the ball. The closer you bring, the shorter the co uh, coverage. So with a geosatellite, same position, you get quite a lot of coverage of mm -hmm. the Earth, but less signal strength. So that's a geo. Correct me if I'm wrong, a, a lot of the kind of geo infrastructure is kind of almost space race or, or Cold War type infrastructure they put in place. It's not just that, actually. If we think of uh, traditional satellite communications is, is geostationary. Um, satellite um, TV is geostationary. Yeah, because 
the the bandwidth that you have and the 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 um, speed is actually good enough for those applications. So those are the sort of the established type services uh, for for geo. Yes, maybe some of the um, some of the military applications, but actually military applications across all of the different types of satellites for varying different reasons that we can explore. Okay. Cool. Well, this is why you get an expert on to talk about this, right? And then you you then kind of move in, don't you, in distance, and you get Middle Earth satellites. Yeah, well, medium Earth, yeah. It's actually worth jumping to the low Earth orbit. Mm. Uh, And the reason why I do that is because um, the medium Earth orbit isn't actually that widely used, apart from uh, GPS uh, type applications. Um, uh, there's There's reasons for that. So it's like you have the geo and its advantages at one end, the Leo and its advantages at the other end. And you would think that the medium Earth orbit is a happy medium, but it's not quite. Yeah. So, so your low Earth orbit satellites, um, a, a good example is the International Space Station. That's mm. the most famous one. And they're at an alt- altitude of about uh, 500 to 1200 kilometers. Yeah. Um, when you think that um, the you know an, an air, I think the highest that an airplane flies above the planet is about fourteen kilometers off the top of my head, so it's still quite a distance. But if you were to get a globe, the, the satellite would only be literally millimeters away from the, the globe. So that's how close it is. What's interesting about those is because going back to the string and a rope analogy. It's actually they need to go a lot. They go a lot faster around the planet. Yeah. So the International Space Station, um, again, off the top, top of my head, I think it circumvents the, the Earth sixteen times a day, something like yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, you can stand there, you can watch it, can't you? Go yeah. past and literally see it kind of transverse the sky very quickly. Yeah. Exactly. So, but but the but the, the the one advantage of so they're whizzing past, which makes them. If you're trying to communicate with one, it makes it very hard to maintain a signal because you've got the signal, it's gone. Yeah. So that's why you need lots and lots of satellites within a low Earth constellation. So that when one satellite is gone, the next one comes along, yeah, to pick up the signal. That's of course is quite complex because you've got to synchronize all the communication um, between you know, your, your ground station or your, your transceiver on, on the planet with what's happening uh, um, up in space. So, you know, it's quite complex, but it's 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 achievable. Um, so, so that's something that, that has, to, has had to be overcome. The other um, dimension with all the LEO satellites is, unlike geos, have to follow the Earth's circumference, but with lower satellites, you can put them on any rotation from pole to pole, it, um, around the equator at different inclinations and that means you've got much more flexibility in terms of overall coverage once you have enough satellites up there. Interesting because obviously that there's a lot of activity in the sector at the moment a lot of satellites being launched and this this the, the I guess the the concept of a satellite has been around for a while why why now why is this kind of picking up pace because you do seem to be hearing more about it and there's more investment going into it as well yeah absolutely so you're going back to our, our geostationary orbit satellite you put that up and you leave it for 15 years so your return on investment was 
something like 15, um, 15 years. It's going up. It's providing a long-term service. It's got a cash flow revenue coming in. Generally, you can recoup the, the cost of the investment of putting it up there. And that's one of the biggest costs that um, that has inhibited progress today is the launch costs. Yeah. Yeah. Elon Musk, bless him with SpaceX, he completely disrupted the space. Yeah. Um, and because of the commercialization of satellite of launches, not just satellite launches, things have now become a lot more economical in terms of deploying satellites into space. You can go on to the SpaceX website and you can put in, I want to launch a satellite and this is the size of it. These are the various components I want. And you get a price on demand, $300,000. Yeah. Just 300,000. Um, it might sound a lot, but actually it's yeah. cheap compared to millions and millions of dollars as, as, as it was traditionally. So launch costs have come down. Um, clearly, um, our, we, we've advanced quite a lot in terms of technology. Um, if you think about what are the components that go into a satellite, it's actually not much different to a mobile phone. One big difference is they need to deal with the environment um, mm -hmm. uh, up there because space is a, a tough environment for any electronics to work. It's a satellite launch costs have come down. The technology um, has improved. The, the benefits of the type of applications that we can do has improved. Um, we have the right, um, more spectrum um, in space to be able to provide the communications. So the timing is right at the moment. At the moment, because yeah, there seems to be this kind of new new phase, new space race. We, we could maybe call it. And obviously, the more the more stuff we throw up there, there's finite space in space. I know that sounds silly, but for Earth orbit, and one of the risks here that is being talked about is you know space junk essentially. And and are we going to end up trapped on our own planet by a cloud of you know satellites that have crashed into each other or malfunctioned or you know been hit by a asteroid or whatever you know small asteroid yeah is is the industry thinking about that as a risk does it kind of understand that there is a finite amount of space yeah it's, it's not so much of just about the space but about the nature of um lots of satellites in orbit i mean does um are you familiar with the um the animation film wally Yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. There's a really funny scene on that. And what's interesting about Wally, and I think it's quite topical at the moment, with, with all, that, well, all the talk around generative AI and the ap apocalyptic world, um, and what, that, what that's talking about, but the, the thing that you might notice if you look at it again is when Wally goes launches in, into space, um, the rocket has to navigate through a whole bunch of space junk, yeah, and so it's like they've actually thought about that ap apocalyptic view. So it, it is a real concern. Uh, and what uh, triggers that concern is the sheer volume of satellites going into low orbit at low Earth orbit. I mean, space junk is a reality already mm. today. You know, we talk about these geosatellites into 15 years and then they get pushed into uh, junk orbit, you know, which is sort of further out. Closer to Earth, low Earth orbit satellites uh, when they expire, which is normally after five to seven years, um, because you know they, they suffer damage from uh, solar radiation and um, atmospheric drag and things like that. 
um, you know, they get pushed out of their orbit and then they burn up and um, that's it. So it's space junk is a concern because you, it's quite a precise piece of engineering mm. to bring a satellite up and launch, get it at the right orbit, get it at the right speed, blast it out and keep keep it into orbit and make, make sure that it's maintains its position. You know, you have that atmospheric drag and that it can still pull it. So they, they need to connect, need to have that continuous bar power to keep in position. If they go slightly off, they lose orbit, they get out of control, they can hit an, another satellite that could be, you know, in a similar sort of trajectory or radius, you know, as as it gets lost. And we the, you know, there are examples of um the International Space Station being yeah. with, with space junk. And that can be anything the size of a, a tennis ball can be uh, quite damaging. The big the big concern is as we put more and more satellites into space, it can be the risk gets higher and higher and higher. And that, uh, you know, space junk issue or space debris triggers more space debris, yeah. creates something called the Kessler syndrome. So yeah, a, a, a big concern, and of course, the traditional satellite vendors are using that as as a um, an ammunition to like it shouldn't happen. Don't let Elon Musk and all the disruptors do this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's well, it's a compelling argument in many ways, I guess, from them. I mean, it's monopolistic as well and protectionist. But and, and this is going off piece a little bit, but but obviously, space is not. Uh, uh, you know, there are there are. Um, treaties international treaties controlling the use of space but how, how does it work from a sovereignty perspective because you've got China obviously are launching a lot of tech out there and that that must worry um the west I imagine so who is there any kind of control over it you know could is there any kind of global control over what goes up there or is it just every every country for itself who's got the technology um well, well there is there is regulations um that um around putting things into space and it's kind of done mainly on goodwill but there's nothing to stop um as we've seen china blowing up its own satellite yeah um it's nothing to do that most of the regulation is to do with the signals coming back down to earth yeah um and that's you know that's governed on a on a country by country basis so that's one one area of regulation the other area of regulation is around uh, spectrum allocation mm. uh, and, and that's been challenging because that that was created in the 1970s which was not really has not not really geared up for the large constellations that we're seeing today so there's been a lot of debate around that um but there is a you know the general treaty that you know people can't go and claim sovereignty around any part of space like you can't claim a chunk of the moon as being part of uh, your your property so similarly you can't Say that um, the bit the, the bit above our country in space to infinity belongs to us. It just doesn't work like that. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess in a way, it's it's private companies now are pushing the space agenda. I know you've got NASA re-looking really at well moon missions again, which is incredibly exciting. But it does feel like the the public sector is driving a lot of the investment and a lot of the technological development. Is that a fair comment? Yeah, absolutely. The private sector is driving the investment, and and, and like NASA are subcontracting to the likes of SpaceX and and. Um, Blue Origin, um, Jeff Bezos' company uh, for for the different parts of the moon mission, as we know. 
I mean, I mean, we have to ask, but well, why is the private sector so interested in space? And in particularly, why are they putting up these satellites? We haven't actually touched on the reason for doing that. And, and you know, it stems back to one key area is that we still have three billion of the planet that are not connected to the internet today. Now, but that 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 figure has complexities in its own right in terms of affordability, etc. So like if you look at the, today's prices for a Starlink service and try and sell them in Africa, it's 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 not it's, it's not going to work. <laughs> it's, it's 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 higher than anybody's individual earnings. But then if you look at what Amazon Kuiper are doing, um, you know, something like 25% of rural America still doesn't have true internet connectivity. So that's a high proportion of people. I think the figure is something like oh um Four million in three or three million in California, five, four or five million in Texas. So that's a lot of people. You know, that's a that's a lot of um, uh, untouched Amazon subscribers. If mm. you like, so you can see. You know, I mentioned earlier that Amazon weren't putting up as many satellites as as um, Starlink. They're putting up about four thousand. I suspect most of them will be to service the, the North American market and to tap into the consumers and small businesses and you know rural areas that don't have the same broadband service that the rest of us enjoy today so that will be an interesting development <laughs> yeah and it's interesting with companies like amazon in particular who um you know love them or hate them incredibly successful obviously you can't deny that that business model and the machine they've got is amazing but um i guess the the other risk with private companies is you know it's this whole privacy risk, right? Especially when it comes to kind of live imaging or it's access to visibility across the entire planet. So again, is that being thought about at all? I mean, I, you know, I'm sure Amazon aren't doing this. It could be, but I don't like the idea of them being able to peer into my backyard. It's a private company. I mean, I don't like the idea of the government doing it, but there we are. That's me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Amazon, as far as I'm aware, I haven't got into the imaging space per se, but um, the whole Earth imaging space with LEO satellites is a huge um, growth opportunity area. Um, uh, so if we look at you know a, a satellite in low orbit um, with an, you know a high resolution um, hyperspectral imaging camera has the potential to see down to the twenty centimeters of, of resolution. Yeah. Wow. It's quite phenomenal. Now, that's dependent on, um, you know, it relies on the sun for light reflection. Um, because of that, it will be interrupted, you know, be disrupted by atmospheric conditions like um, weather, cloud, etc. So there will be some limitations in terms of what the can, technology can, can do dependent on the environment in, on, in which it is collect, collecting the image. And there are... Other interesting imaging solutions um, that use uh, uh, something called s s um, synthetic aperture radio, which works on uh, radar-type technology, and that beams a you know a radar signal down to bounce off something and come back, and it and it works out based based on the spectrum of the response that it gets back. It's able to provide analysis, so it might look at I don't know rainforest, for example and uh, look at the condition of uh, the, the trees based on the, the pattern that it receives back. 
So there's some really powerful use cases, but as you say, where does that fit in with the data privacy? It depends on 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 where the the satellite is pointing ultimately, doesn't it? Um, yeah. You know, and it, to what extent is it different than what Google's already doing with, uh, you know, Google Street View, uh, etc. I suspect, you know, the, the the private companies won't really be too interested on, in us at this level. I say in jest, but I've just sort of a, a, an application with that is contradictory. But they will be more interest in the commercial sector yeah yeah and what 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 it can offer in that space around imaging um i i i i pause there because if you can imagine um doing a, an image of people in the street if it can do facial recognition of the individuals it can if it can pick up what they're wearing what um shopping that they have fits well into the amazon space <laughs> Definitely. It also fits yeah. well into uh, political control um, yeah. and controlling yeah. populations. Um, and, you know, there's no regu- regulation around mm. that at the moment. I mean, NASA, for example, this week um, had their uh, conference talking about UFOs. Um, one of the hot yeah. topics that came up there is that they said, well, we can't scan for every eventuality because we know you don't want us looking in your backyard. So, yeah, it's a known issue. <laughs> yeah, very interesting. And I guess... The kind of final question is, where do we go from here? What, what, what comes, what's the future for these technologies? And especially with things like AI. And I, I wonder if that's kind of interesting because latency is obviously an issue in, in these systems. So being able to make decisions at source potentially could be interesting. Yeah, I mean, you say latency is an issue, but not so much for the low earth orbit. Yeah. And that's a key differentiator in terms of, Yes, you know, going back, you know, going back to how it serves the broadband market. So, existing um, customers who rely on satellite broadband only have geo type services. So, they the latency is is eight hundred milliseconds. So, pretty useless for 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 gaming and things like that. Whereas with with um, Leo, it's it's more in proportion to what we get today for our existing broadband services. So, so within that space, um, uh, you know, with with Leo. Uh, latency is not an issue but going back to your question around the the application of, of ai you know who are the who, who are the business users that are going to be interested in 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 leo uh, satellite applications and i think it's any industry that has people or things in remote and hard to reach locations you know so so that could be maritime industry it could be the aviation industry it could be um um, um, mining, logistics, anything like that, yeah. And when you get, say, remote mining in a, in a really sort of ruggedized type area, ideally you have uh, some sort of an autonomous vehicle so that you don't have to put people in, into that environment um, and you want to be able to control it and you want to be able to monitor the condition of that vehicle in that environment. Um, because it's so remote, you don't have a 5G or a 4G network, but you have connectivity to a, um, a Leo network with low latency. So now you can, um, with um, the right technology, the combination of uh, the Leo network, the combination of um, you know a sensor, IoT type capability, uh, the the combination of um, AI to do the the analysis and the predictive monitoring. Now you've got the opportunity to 
um, deploy those sort of use cases in those hard to reach, difficult places, which is not really geared up for humans to work. Um, it becomes safer, it becomes a reality. And there is actually more of those use cases than you might imagine. Yeah, very interesting. I think one thing that's that's worth bearing in mind is when we think about this technology um, in terms of how it will evolve, um, I won't I don't see it happening in isolation. Um, you know, we we'll we'll start to think we'll start to see that as more and more satellites go into low orbit, as we start to see some of the players providing services as a service. We'll see the um, convergence of, you know, the, the imaging type solutions, the AI capabilities, but we'll start to see that converge with some of the terrestrial or on-land type solutions as well. So, you know, you might mm. think of, you know, supply chain end-to-end. You're not just thinking about, oh, there's a, a land-based solution and there's a space-based solution. In fact, it's an end-to-end integrated solution. So I think we'll start to see you know, the convergence of space technology with um, uh, land technology. The fact that there's lots of satellites up there, going to be up there providing lots of image means there's going to be tons and tons of, of data. Uh, and that data is going to have different value for, for different organizations. So I'll, I expect to see uh, a number of these companies providing as a service type capabilities. Um, it's worth bearing in mind that the likes of Amazon and Microsoft have a, something called a ground station as a service. So what that means is, you know, you deploy your satellite into satellites, a constellation to orbit. You've got an application running up there. It's generating lots of data. How do you get it back down mm. next to the, the ground station as a service from the cloud provider? And now you've got all that data and the uh, available as a service to whoever wants to use it. Uh, so I think that will be quite an interesting area to watch out for as well. Thank you so much for tuning into the episode today. I really hope you enjoyed it. That was a fascinating chat. And actually we recorded another episode with Phil at the same time, all around IoT. And that's gonna be released in a couple of months. So definitely keep your eyes open for that. And on the note of not missing any new episodes, you can sign up on openvelocity.co.uk if you want to sign up to our newsletter list. So we'll tell you about new episodes, exciting podcast news, new guests we're getting on, conversations we're having. We don't send you any marketing bump, but it's all about the podcast. So you go and sign up on openvelocity.co.uk. Also, obviously, if you want to chat to us about marketing, you're very, very welcome to. We, we help companies working in extremely complex environments, complex markets, complex industries or complex technologies. And that's that's why space is quite exciting for us, because there's a real opportunity and we think marketing can definitely help. So always open to a conversation. You can grab me on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram and even on TikTok. God help me. Um, at Beth and Vincent and you can find Open Velocity obviously on our website as well and a bit more about us and about the team and then finally if you enjoyed this podcast I would love it and appreciate it if you liked and reviewed us so you left us a rating and or a review on the podcast platform of your choice all feedback honestly really really welcome very open to what can we do better are there any guests you want us to interview any topics you want us to explore and I'll leave you with that thought and say thank you so much for listening I hope to see you in the next episode.